Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across the Faith FM network. This is The Breakfast Show, positively different radio in the morning and you are with Lyle and... Mon, and I'm so excited. Lyle, guess what? What? We are doing today the biggest giveaway we have ever done in the history of Faith FM. In fact, we've already done it because of the delayed broadcast, so be quick else you're going to miss out. That's exactly right. The uh, live show is already one day ahead of you on this one, but uh-huh. there is still plenty of giveaways available for yes. our, our, our dearly beloved delayed broadcast listeners. So we had a hundred giveaways to do today and, uh, well, on the day we recorded this. But don't stress, you can still get uh, get, get on to the giveaway. Just stay tuned. Uh, towards the end of the show, we'll be doing... We have three giveaways. In fact, I think we should give out some details now because this is the... We've got to have yeah. a bit of mercy on these okay, guys. Okay, This is a delayed broadcast. But basically, <laughs> if you're one of the first 100 people to subscribe to our new YouTube channel, we're going to be sending you a copy of Nature's Superfoods. It's a cookbook by Sanitarian that goes through the 28 superfoods. Um, a transition. This is great if you're transitioning to like a more plant, you know, veggie. Yes, a transitional cookbook. Yeah, if you're wanting to get more of those into your system, this is a great cookbook for you. And uh, we're going to be giving away 100 copies of this as long as you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Now, the way to do that is go to YouTube, search for Faith FM Australia, and we should be the first search result. Uh, our channel is the one that has a grey dot logo that says Faith FM Positively Different inside the lo- uh, inside the um, symbol there. And, uh, of course... There's things in here I didn't even know what they are. <laughs> Macadamia and lime biscotti. Biscotti? But it sounds really it is, yummy. It is. And Biscotti the, is the delicious. Pictures, the pictures of it are amazing. Yes, indeed they are. Um, then mango and sweet chili dip with pita bread. Ch- oh, this, is, this is like it a looks most, good, right? Like orange pancakes with apple syrup. I'm going to have to put this down. But yeah, so you be, be one of the first uh, first 100 to, to subscribe to our channel. Our channel is great. We have a new video every every weekday because we put up our Q of the D uh, footage on there and people love to, to watch that. We get requests for it all the time. And of course, if you have a Gmail account, you already have uh, a YouTube account, so you don't need to worry about having to sign up um, because you do need to sign up, obviously to subscribe but don't stress too much about it it's very easy it won't cost you a thing just subscribe to our channel be the first in the first 100 people to do so we'll send you a copy of nature's superfoods there you go so um, starting off the show with a giveaway how good is that that is that is fantastic and of course coming up on today's show we're going to talk about dogs oh i love them and how dogs love humans and how dogs are concerned about what humans say and um, try and communicate try and communicate yeah it's a yes. fantastic story
Bethany Dillon with Satisfy here. Yeah, on my bad. Faith FM. <laughs> that was not Sandra Antimon at all. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the screen got changed. The screen moved and it was like, Ooh. And I just read the screen. Whatever's on the screen <laughs> goes up. Get <laughs> so we, have the, we have the advantage at the end of the song in that we know what actually, what actually played. But anyway, be that as it may, what have we got for the first clue? For the, Do we have something up on Instagram yet? Yes, we do. The first clue is up on our Instagram. And. Um, this is this is a hard one. I'm not going to lie. Look, Lyle's got this. Oh, 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 is yeah, it? it is a hard one. No, it is a hard one. It is a hard. This, okay. is, this is an obscure individual. He does pop up a few times, but it is a bit obscure. Who am I? Zadok the priest and I anointed Solomon king at Gihon. Mm-hmm. Mm, if you know who it was that anointed Solomon King along with Zadok the priest at Gihon, give us a call. 1-800-FAITH-FM is 1-800-324-843. You can text your answer 0491-064-669. And if you get it right before Lyle figures it out, I'm going to send you double prizes. Yeah, you got fairly good. you got fairly good chances on this one because um, I know who this is, but I'm not sure whether I'm going to bring their name to mind um, well, don't it's say an the name on the one. So, uh, go and look up um, the story of Solomon. Start reading the story of Solomon. Mm-hmm. You will find the answer. Um, Solomon's anointing as king, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, you've got a good chance to get two prizes this morning. Indeed, and the prize this morning, well, the first prize, if we're not doing double prizes, is a wonderful copy of the book uh, Gifted Hands. It's the Ben Carson story, and it has this uh, edition includes a letter to the reader from Ben's mother. 
So have you have you ever read Ben's story, Ben Carson's story? I haven't. I've watched the movie, but I haven't read the read the book. So he's a he's a he's a brain surgeon, uh, first of a brain surgeon to separate um, uh, twins who are joined at the brain, mm-hmm. and um, it, he's an incredible story considering like you know where he started from, um, growing up in the ghetto and gangs and that kind of thing. And yeah, the most accomplished neurosurgeon in the world. Yeah, yeah, and and, uh, and just you know he tells a story about how John. Uh, John, how Jesus, sorry, <laughs> I'm looking at the back of the book and he went to John Hopkins Medical Institution, um, but he, he tells about how Jesus helped him overcome his fiery temper because he had a terrible temper and, um, and, and woven in with this story is a story of his mother who was, you know, determined to give her kids an education. And so I particularly remember how she would make them read books and then write up book reports and then she would, you know, uh, go through them and, and just mark them. But the thing was she was only pretending because she was illiterate the whole time. And so she was like, you know, putting red marks here and a tick there and a cross there and redo this <laughs> bit and do that bit. But the whole time was just trying to get her kids educated and they didn't realise she couldn't read. But she herself, um, through the example of her son, uh, in later in life went back to school and got her own med degree. So she's, you know, learned how to read. I did not know yeah, that. Cool. I did not know that part. Of, I knew that he grew. I knew that this was a kid who grew up um, in a in a black ghetto, mm-hmm. um, a very low socioeconomic environment. Yep. Um, primed for a, you know, just a really horrible life, a single parent. You know, all of these. You, you combine this whole story to abject poverty. Mm-hmm. Prime candidate for abortion right there. Yes. It, and uh, is the world's greatest neurosurgeon, the greatest neurosurgeon the world has ever seen. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, he, do you know, he actually went and did a bit of study in Perth, Western Australia, in my hometown. Oh, there you go. One of his internships. And uh, him and his wife, Candy, they stayed in a suburb uh, of Claremont mm-hmm. and uh, and actually named their first son Claremont. There you go. <laughs> Which is really funny to us Western Australians. It's like it's like naming a kid Newcastle or something <laughs> for Wall's End. <laughs> We're like, what? They must have enjoyed their time in Australia. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they must have done. Anyway, a copy of that book is the prize. If you can tell us the answer to the very hard Monday morning kick your brain into gear quiz. Lyle. Yes. I got some good news for you. I like good news on a Monday yeah. morning. Actually, I'm going to tell you something really fluffy uh, first. I've got a fluffy story too. Oh, good. Nothing like a little Monday morning yeah, fluff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a bit of weekly fluff. Oh, this is not you know particularly about an animal because usually people think animals when we say fluff. But this is just really hilarious. Oh, mine's about animals. Okay. Dogs. Well, Oh, 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 I'm really looking forward to that then. By the way, my dog thanks you. Oh, bless his little heart. He got heart. to eat. Yeah, he also got to have shelter because when I got there, the gate had blown shut oh, and he couldn't get undercover. So he was out in that storm. And oh. I felt bad because I'd been sitting there for like an hour just watching the worst of it go Believe by. me, believe me. <laughs> My dog would not be disappointed to be out in the storm. He was probably out there barking for an hour trying to catch, catch raindrops, raindrops in his yeah. mouth. Well, he was a soggy doggy when I found him. <laughs> <laughs> and he actually looked a little scared because the, the lightning and the thunder was like really loud right above us. But yeah, he, um, I, I propped the gate open so he wouldn't get barged out. Okay. Anyway, this is hilarious. So cops have found a, um, a stolen van. Guess what kind of van it is? Uh, uh, Honda? Be really stereotypical. <laughs> no, it was a donut van. <laughs> a donut van? <laughs> Somebody stole a donut van. So, that actually makes sense. Yeah, so I mean. Why uh, not? I mean, we're, so, we're all someone familiar. Was, someone was hungry. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to steal a van, why not a donut van? And had a sweet tooth. It was, it was a Krispy Kreme van specifically. So, uh, someone, you know, we're all familiar with the stereotype <clears throat> about police officers and their affinity for donuts. Uh, but these cops in particular were no exception. And um, apparently, a Krispy Kreme donut van had been stolen from its location in Lake City, Florida. Yeah, that went to the top of the list right there. Yeah. Oh, it's like high priority <laughs> <Yeah>. right now. <laughs> all Everyone's units, on all that case. units. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, later in the day, they did find the van. It was about 310 kilometres away in another town called Clearwater. And the store manager of the van's branch, he was so he was so grateful that they found the van, I guess, so quickly on, on the same day, that he offered up all the donuts in the van to the police force as a thank you for recovering the stolen van. Oh, so they were still good? Yeah, well, it was, it was stolen and found all on the same day, yep. which would have saved that business owner a lot of money because yeah, a lot yeah, of these business, wrong. like the Krispy Kreme donut shops, they're all franchises. So essentially they're small business owners um, mm-hmm. and losing a van like that would have been a, a big loss to him. Um, so he said, you know what? Y'all can have the donuts. The whole police force can have the donuts. These donut, these donut cops, they're so sweet. So they did have a few of the donuts for a snack, but then they drove the van to um, Clearwater, this town Clearwater's homeless uh, homeless district where all the homeless population hang out and basically gave out donuts for like a good couple of hours to all the homeless uh, population of Clearwater. That's pretty cool. Well, how cool of a day would that be? First yeah, of all, yeah, yeah, yeah. And stolen donut truck gets <laughs> rung in. You get to find it and then hand out donuts like your donut Santa or something. Well, that's good policing too because you're building Absolutely. you're building connections with the community and rather than being the enemy, you're the friend of the community and it's important to be the friend of the homeless community because homeless people do see and hear a lot of things that you know the average person doesn't, and you want you, you need these people on your side. You That's know? it. That's people it. People that are sleeping rough, you need them on your side, and and uh, and of course they get to have a decent feed. Well, Amen. Yeah, I thought a, that was a great a tasty feed anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe not such a nutritious feed, but it's nice to have a treat Definitely. every now and then. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I'm going to do a little quiz on you right now, Lyle. Okay, all right. Okay, I'm ready. so uh, there's Bring a particular country, right? I got it. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you do not have it. <laughs> this country has just won a UN prize for being the world's first to have a hundred a one hundred percent organic state with sixty six thousand farmers on board. So there's a state in this country. It's the world's first 100% organic state, 66,000 farmers. It's and a state within the country. It's not a country. That's correct. But guess what country it is. So, not the, so not it's a state. country that actually has states. Well, yeah. Well, region, state, whatever. And, uh, and, they've, and they've won a top UN prize for it. Can you guess what country it is? No. It's the world's first fully organic state. You didn't get it? Mm. It's going to be a surprise to you. Just take a step in the dark. Come on. For the audience. Um, a country with states. Lots of countries don't have states. Don't focus on the states. Focus on like who would go organic. Maybe somewhere in Scandinavia. No, you're wrong. Ah. <laughs> it's India. No. What? I know, right? That's what I was thinking. I was like, no way. I can't afford pesticides. <laughs> Lyle. Lyle, slap on the wrist for that one. So, th- no, this is actually really great. Um, so, it's a northern, northern, northeastern region of Sikkim. It's uh, it's achieved this ground groundbreaking milestone. It really is. Um, it's sec- after it successfully managed to educate and convert all sixty six thousand of its farmers to sustainable agricultural practices. And I this have is said blowing this so my many mind. Time. This is absolutely blowing my mind right now. I've said this so I many times. So education is key. Education is key to yeah. any change. Any change whatsoever, you need education. So in addition to educating their farmers on organic farming, the state's policy implemented a phase-out of chemical fertilizers and pesticides and a total ban on sale and use of chemical pesticides. Um, it actually slowly began its journey towards receiving organic certification um, in, back in 2003. So this has been a long journey for them. Whoa. Yeah, so it reached... This is, this is before organic was even trendy exactly so and it, but it took uh it took let me see 12 years until 2015 to reach its goal and then another three years later they'd won this award and it's a, it really is a very prestigious top award from the u 
win. And, uh, and they, it was called dubbed the Oscar for Best Policy. And I wonder about this myself because we, we just off air, we've, you and I have spoken about some of the effects of pesticides and chemicals that you learned about at Creation Conference and how it's messing up even, you know, when a woman is pregnant and it's messing up the process inside her body. And, and yeah, and the chemical composition inside yeah, of our brains. Yeah, and it's just scary. So I think this is great. We need to champion this. I wish every supermarket in Australia would grow organic. I really just would. I wish I could walk into Woolies and all the veggies and fruits are organic and not just one little expensive section in the back.
You're listening to Cliff Richard with the Millennium Prayer here on Faith FM. It is Monday the 22nd of October and we are into the second clue of our quiz. Yes, indeed. Who am I? Let me just have a quick browse here and see if one of these is harder than the other. They're all going to be hard. Just letting you know ahead of time, they're all going to be hard this morning. Yeah, actually, I'm going to switch around the next two clues because the next... The third clue is harder than the second clue. All right. <laughs> Who am I? The Lord sent word to David through me that he was to name his son Jedediah. There you go. Do you know who it is yet, Lyle? Mm-mm. No, Lyle still doesn't know it. Give us a call. This is your opportunity. I know who it is. I, I have no idea of the name. You're going to kick yourself when I tell you the name. You, you really are. It's not like some sort of wacky, obscure kind of name. It's like a, it's like a, it's a name we have today even. So, who yeah. did the Lord send uh, send word to David through um, that he was to name his son Jedediah? Give us a call one eight hundred Faith FM one eight hundred three two four eight four three. If you can tell us before Lyle gets it, you get two prizes. Oh, he just got it. He just wrote it down. Okay, two prizes are off the cards. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a call anyway because you can get a copy of Gifted Hands, the Ben Carson story with a letter to the reader from his mother included. All right, so the big news, of course, in the uh, in the news today is the apology that the Prime Minister will be making for victims of institutional child abuse. And, of course, this is as a result of the findings of the Royal Commission into Institutional Child Abuse, which raises some interesting questions that have, um, you know, that, that just sort of keep popping up over and over again. Of course, there are quite a number of people who are travelling to Canberra for that apology. Uh, but the real question, Mon, is, you know, what's more powerful, words or actions? Actions. Actions. And <clears throat> I think that, you know, these apologies that we have from time to time are an important thing, uh, but because, you know, obviously they acknowledge a certain level of, uh, you know, government has let the, let the country down somewhere. Mm-hmm. But actions are much louder than words, and because of this there are a lot of victims um, who spoke up during the Royal Commission who are boycotting the event. Oh, really? And some of the reasons that they're boycotting... Well, like, you read one story here of a man who spoke up, and, of course, um, he had not said anything his entire life. He was abused as a young student in one of these Catholic schools down in Victoria. And for him to speak up, it was just, you know, he has suffered the most incredible shame just to talk about that story. Mm -hmm. Now, nobody should, should be ashamed of telling their story. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know this was they, they didn't deserve this. This was this was an attack. Yeah, they didn't do anything to deserve it whatsoever at all. They didn't encourage it or otherwise. And so, uh, but but you know you, you can kind of understand when somebody you know particularly a, a, a man has been attacked like this as a young boy, particularly back in the day when you know these kinds of homosexual attacks was was the most shameful thing ever. Mm-hmm. It would be very, very difficult for them to speak up. And so he took the opportunity to speak up, spoke up, hoping that it would bring about change, and now he's saying, and now the Roman Catholic Church still does not have mandatory reporting. They still now have, to have not changed the legislation. This was, this was the key finding of the Royal Commission, mandatory reporting, and every other church... Every other institution has mandatory reporting, in the Roman, reporting, and the Roman Catholic Church, which is responsible for twenty times more abuse than any other uh, institution um, on a per capita basis, is uh, is, um, is 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 still refusing to go by the recommendations of the Royal Commission. It's just disgusting. It's just I'm so disgusted <coughs> by it. 
It's one of those. It's one of these things where sometimes you know Pope Francis will stand up and say something, and I'm like, yes, I absolutely agree with that. Go for it, you know. And then at other times, it's like he completely lets me down, and mm. this is an area in which he's completely letting me down. It's like this is an area that needs to change, and somebody needs to do something about it. The Victorian government is talking about it again, and I mean, every government it, needs to be talking about this. I know, I know. And this is one of the other disappointments is that it was left up to the states to uh, bring in, you know. Um, legislation to deal with reporting and so far you've only got Victoria and New South Wales that have instituted you know, mandatory reporting and um, for everyone of course except the Roman Catholic Church and so yeah this is a um, this is an issue that uh, quite a few people are boycotting the government over because they're like you know we spoke up we put our names out there we went on record we dealt with the shame we we, we dredged up all of this stuff from our past that we didn't want to be thinking about again we've dealt with the trauma of it um, it has been dragged through the Royal Commission, and now nothing has happened. It's not no, nothing has happened. I shouldn't say that. We are we are light years ahead of where we were before. But the key things haven't happened. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, the key things is making every institution a mandatory reporter. I'm a mandatory reporter. You're a mandatory reporter. Um, anybody who's working with children, anybody who has a working with children's check needs to be a mandatory reporter. It's as simple as that. It does make me wonder, though, that if they do manage to um, pass this law to make the Catholic Church mandatory reporter, reporters, whether or not they will actually do it, though, or whether or not they'll just be like, ha-ha, yeah, whatever. You know, we know there's a law, but we're not going to abide by yeah, it. Yeah, and, and civil disobedience, I understand that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there would be laws and penalties for that. It would be a, a, a difficult thing to prosecute. But the government but needs to do it as, do. as an action towards the victims. Absolutely. It, it, it boggles my mind that the Catholic Church wouldn't want to do this because essentially what they're doing the Catholic is Church they're making... The Catholic Church has such a bad name right yeah. now and they're just making it ten times worse. It's they're, like, guys, wake up to what the, what is happening in the world. They're basically declaring to the public, hey, everyone, it is unsafe to bring your children anywhere near a catholic church just by the way <coughs> it's, a, it's a it's a way of saying that isn't it i'm yeah i'm, anyway. I'm staggered by it I, and i and i, and I sympathize with all the um the people who had to yeah absolutely through. absolutely yeah and, and, and apology that is well deserved mm-hmm. um, we need to be apologizing for this okay so moving on to happier stories go on weekly fluff Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Doggies. Dog stories. So they got a bunch of dogs and they trained them to sit still in an MRI machine. What? So they could study their brains to find Aww. out what was going on inside their doggy brains. I bet you they found the most positive brain scans ever. Just well, happy, 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 happy. This is the crazy thing. <laughs> I they know did. it. <laughs> dogs are the happiest creatures on the planet. <laughs> um, but what they did find that was interesting was that they were they were specifically looking at how dogs respond to Words, human words, human uh-huh, language, uh-huh. and they found that um, there is more neural activity in a dog's brain when you present a dog with a word that he doesn't know. Oh, really? Now, of course, the opposite is the case in human beings. Uh-huh. Okay, so if you uh, if you walk into a group of a room where a group of people are speaking a foreign language that you don't understand, your brain shuts off. Yeah, yeah. Whereas a dog's brain switches on. Ah, he's trying to figure out what you're trying to say. That's right, because he actually cares. And he does that little head tilting thing. It's he does just the head, so cute. I know, he does the head tilt and he has a think about it. Uh-huh. He's like, because they would, they would show him, uh, they, they'd show the dog um, toys, you mm-hmm. know, like, like uh, you know, piggy or monkey, mm-hmm. that the dog understood and recognised and knew. And sometimes they would just say the words, you know, piggy or monkey, that the dog you know, understood those words and there would be joy in the dog. The dog would be happy. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then they would say, um, you know, like, uh, 
bobu or some you know uh-huh, unintelligible uh-huh. word. And uh, and sometimes they would associate that with an object that the dog had never seen before, and the dog would do his he- head tilt and be just thinking really hard, trying to figure <laughs> out what his owner was saying because he loved his owner so much and he wants to make his owner happy. And he wants to communicate. And he wants Aww, to communicate. Oh, that's so sweet. Now I really, really, really want a dog. <laughs> Everything I find out about dogs just makes them better. I swear to goodness. <clears throat> they certainly were created to be, you know, man's best friend. Uh, they're adorable. Do you know what? I am because I re- I really want a dog, but I'm the only thing that prevents me is because I have a little bit of an allergy, mm. and so I need one of those uh, non-shedding dogs. But they're usually a bit more expensive, um, so I'm just gonna casually just put out a little uh, feeler. So if we have any dog, <laughs> dog breeders who are listening who feel like they might want to donate a puppy, uh, <laughs> to a, a non-allergenic <laughs> uh, allergy puppy, yeah, preferably like a a medium-sized male chocolate labradoodle, just not, <laughs> but nothing too specific, you yeah. know. <laughs> Or expensive. Because, <laughs> you know, Faith FM could totally use a mascot and we promised we'd put up pictures of him on our social media and we'd totes tag your breeding business. We really would. <laughs> Don't tell my boss I said this. <laughs> bring, you, bring you in for an interview. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be the best interview ever. Tell us all about how dogs were created by God to be man's best friend. Amen. Amen. Did you know um, at your son's 21st birthday party earlier this year, um, I organised a scavenger hunt for them and one of the one of the point get, um one of the challenges that you could get to do to get more points was to take a picture with a, with a puppy. And one of the teams actually like totally ballparked it because they found a puppy and brought it to me. Oh, It was the best yes. thing ever. They got many, many, many extra points <laughs> of bringing right. me an indeed. actual puppy. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, animals do bring us joy. And uh, we do remember that God created them for this. And it's interesting to see the connection between how animals want to communicate with us and, and the same way that God wants to communicate with us. When we speak to him, you know, he, he goes into like this communication. He wants to you know, figure out what we're trying to say and he listens to our prayers. So, yeah, it's interesting to see the correlation there. So many hunger, so many blind, starting for work. 
Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8, or 88. I'm at the Creation Super Conference and catching up with Dr. Mark Harwood. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you for having me on, Lyle. Now, just as an introduction, Mark has played a key role in the development of Australia's national satellite system since its inception back in 1980. Is that right, Mark? That's right. It was way back in the days before companies like OSAT even existed and Australia did not have its own national satellite system. Wow. Now, um, being responsible, I guess, for the overall you know, system design, of which now you know four generations of Optus satellites, you're now a speaker and scientist with uh, CMI and your background really gives you a, a good qualification for the presentation that you just made on the astronomical evidence uh, for creation. Now, one of the things that, that really struck me was um, where you drew the difference between um, experimental science and historical science. I wonder if you could just comment on that uh, for us for a moment. Yeah, sure. Look, that's one of the most important distinctions, I think, that we seek to explain to people because there's a tendency to think that when a scientist makes some pronouncement that it must be right because scientists do things by experiment, they can test their results and when they come up with a number it's verified and so if the scientist tells us that the earth is four and a half billion years old then he must be right but there's a difference between actually observing something and conducting experiments on it in the present that's what experimental science is about and trying to look back into the past and reconstructing it based on what we can observe in the present you see sorry for butting in so so experimental science this is where you get the um, observable, testable, reproducible kind of principle. Absolutely. Like the, the uh, electronics that we're using right now to record this interview is all the result of people doing experiments in laboratories and testing things, and if it's wrong, you can check it and fix it up. So it's all done in the present, and that's what gives us um, all the amazing technological gadgets that we have today, like computers and phones and you know all this kind of equipment. Mm. But historical science is different. In historical science, the scientist looks at evidence in the present and then he makes up a story about the past to try and explain what he's looking at in the present. Okay, so that that, that turns scientists into novelists? Well, they become historians, I guess, in the sense that they make up a a history to try and explain what they're seeing now. Mm -hmm. But when a scientist does that, uh, if you think about it, it's, it's, it's inevitable. They engage what they believe about the past to explain the present. Sure. So it kind of uh, is a reflection, I guess, of the scientist's belief system. The belief system he already has before he even looks at the evidence. And when you interpret things according to belief, then one person's belief might be different from another's. And so you can end up with different versions or different stories explaining the same thing observed in the present. Now, in the talk, I had an example of um, uh, some fossils that were called, uh, went together to form a creature called Pachycetus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the people who found it 
thought that this was an intermediate link between land mammals and sea mammals. Now the evolutionary story has it that life evolved in the oceans and then we came up onto the land and developed legs and lungs and all sorts of things. Uh, finally land mammals evolved and then some of those went back into the ocean and evolved into sea mammals like whales. So when this guy looked at this, um, the evidence, and by the way all he had was a fragment of a skull and a couple of teeth, he reconstructed something which he thought would fit beautifully as an intermediate form between a land mammal and a sea mammal and they called it Pachycetus, which means a whale found in Pakistan. Now, with, with Pachycetus, let's just, just, just think about this. You've, you've got part of a skull, yeah. a couple of teeth. That's right. How do you then go from there to a... Inter- I mean, how much imagination is required? Heaps, heaps of it. Heaps of imagination. <laughs> yeah, right? I, I mean, mean, I'm not a scientist. I'm just looking at it and thinking, you know, you've got, that's, a, that's a pretty long stretch. That's right. Someone once said... Um, I love science. One gets such a wholesale return of conjecture from such a trifling investment in fact, <laughs> which I think was very well expressed. It might have been Mark Twain. <laughs> but, um, yeah, look, it is. It's imagination. Now, the interesting thing was that this uh, Pachycetus thing was published in uh, a scientific journal and everybody thought, wow, they found an intermediate link between land mammals and sea mammals. But then about seven years later, they discovered a complete skeleton of Pachycetus and it actually turns out to be a large rodent kind of thing, you know, which is nothing <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, big rat, <laughs> nothing like what they, uh, what they had envisaged in this scientific article. So the point is, when you get more evidence, there's less room for imagination. But it does illustrate the point that historical science engages the scientist's belief system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when a scientist approaches the evidence, if he already believes the evolutionary story, the idea that there is no God, you have to explain everything in naturalistic terms, and so we immediately have to have deep time, billions of years, and uh, random, unguided processes. If that's the scientist's belief system, then he interprets all the evidence he sees in that light. Sure, sure. But on the other hand, there are scientists like myself and many others, and those employed by CMI, for instance, who believe that God's word is the truth and that the historical record laid out in the Bible gives us a much better framework for interpreting the evidence that we see in the world around us. And God's Word says that God created everything in six normal length days, just like the days we experience now. And not only that, from tracing the genealogies and all the rest of it, you can construct a timeline that gets you from the time of creation to the time of Jesus in approximately 4,000 years. Sure. And from the time of Jesus to today is about 2,000 years. So according to the Bible, not my idea, here we stand about 6,000 years after the creation. So when you look at that same evidence that, um, and, and we've got some background noise here, but that's because we're just live at the, uh, at the super conference, that's all good. Um, but when, you get, you, when you've got that same evidence you're looking at through one pair of glasses, which is the biblical pair of glasses, because, you know, you and I, we've seen evidence of inspiration. Somebody else looks at it through a different pair of glasses. The evidence isn't going to change. The evidence is the same. That's right. But the conclusion can be widely different. Absolutely. From a scientific perspective. That's right. Depending on the glasses that you're using to look at that. So it's interesting, isn't it, because it comes back to the scientist's belief system. So all the apparent conflict between science and the Bible actually comes in this area of historical science because it's a conflict of two beliefs about history. But you never find a conflict between the Bible and experimental science, the science based on observable, repeatable experiments. I was going to ask you about that because, you know, observable, repeatable, 
um, and testable. So there's nothing that's ever been discovered that's observable, repeatable, testable that is against the Bible. No. No, that's, 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 that's absolutely fantastic. not. <laughs> See, the, the Bible is truth, right? It's yeah. God's word. God yeah. doesn't lie. Mm-hmm. Um, there'd be no sense in him lying, nor in deceiving us. He wouldn't say, for instance, that he created in six days and make it so plain in the text that that's what he meant, if indeed he had not done that. Mm-hmm. So we start on the rock-solid foundation of God's trustworthiness, his uh, integrity in him. There's no shadow of turning. He knows everything, he's all-powerful, and it's an eyewitness account of what he did right from the beginning. Mm. Given to us, because if you think about it, we would have absolutely no other way of knowing what happened right back at the beginning, unless the eyewitness, the creator himself, had not written it down for us. Sure, sure. But he has. Yeah. I was speaking with Dr. Mark Harwood at the uh, uh, Creation Ministries International Super Conference in Queensland. We're talking about uh, historical science and experimental science. Now, you particularly spent some time talking about astronomical evidence, and I thought that we mm. might spend a little bit of time talking about sure, that. Sure, sure. Um, let's start close. Let's start with the moon, shall we? Yes. Well, I talked, uh, I talked about the moon a bit at the conference. In fact, this is a lovely example of how observational science not only does not disagree with the Bible, but it affirms what the Bible says, and it confirms the historical record. And, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing about the moon is that secular scientists have tried to explain the origin of the moon. Now, you'd think that something so close to us and something we've actually walked on and sent space probes to and busily orbit and photograph and measure and do all sorts of things that we'd have a pretty fair idea what, um, you know, how it came about. But of all the, uh, the secular theories, and there are at least four major lines of thought, they all fail at some point or other to explain the existence of the moon, to the point where one very famous Harvard University astronomer um, said once uh, jokingly that uh, there is no satisfactory explanation for the existence of the moon, so the best explanation is that it is an illusion. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) obviously in a moment of humour. Yeah, sure. But underlying, I think, a sense of a bit of exasperation. But the Bible tells us that the moon and the sun and all the stars were created on the fourth day of creation week. So if we go back to the the source book, the authoritative record, God's own eyewitness account, then we know when the moon was created. And we know why, because it was to serve as a lesser light to rule the night. The yeah, so the Bible, the Bible describes it as a lesser light to, to, to rule and also uh, a, a way of marking seasons and so yes, forth. That's right. Does the moon have other functions here on this earth? Oh, look, it uh, influences our tides, for instance. It causes the ocean tides to continually oxygenate the coastal waters so that life can thrive. It's an integral part of uh, our whole ecology of the planet. It has a very important role. But one of the things that I brought out in the talk was that the moon is currently observed, it's observational science now, to be receding from us at about four centimetres a year. And we know that because the Apollo astronauts actually left corner reflectors on the surface of the moon. And these are reflectors that reflect light back to the Earth. So scientists send up high-powered laser pulses and they get back the images and from that they can measure accurately the distance between us and the moon. So here it is steadily receding at about four centimetres a year. But you can wind that process back and say, well, that says that as it got closer and closer, tides would have been greater, but more and more energy would have been dissipated on the Earth and in the moon. And the secular scientists themselves have figured out 
that the Earth-Moon system cannot be older than about one and a half billion years. Now, the Earth-Moon system is supposed to be four and a half billion years old, but just on observational science, it tells us, well, hey, it can't be more than a third of what they need it to be. <laughs> so it's a big problem. And uh, what they don't say is that you can't actually even get to one and a half billion because by the time you're getting close to, say, maybe one billion, the Earth would have melted. Mm. So life would have been totally uh, impossible on the planet. So that's the kind of evidence that I think is very important. People don't hear much about that. So what do they do? Well, when you are faced with observational evidence which doesn't stack up with your beliefs, you have to try and bridge the gap. And so they make up a story. And the story goes like, uh, well... Maybe there was less energy dissipation in the past and the moon wasn't receding so quickly. But wait a minute, aren't we supposed to be studying the past based on what we have in the present? Ah, exactly, right. <laughs> and now you've got the point, you see. So what we do is we make up a story, but you see, you can't observe that. So it's actually not science. What we're now dealing with is philosophy or metaphysics or history, but it's not observable science, so they're stories. However, the evidence that we do see is consistent with a recent creation, mm. not one four and a half billion years ago. Mm, mm, definitely. We've got just a little bit of time left. Um, maybe you could comment for us on Venus. You mentioned uh, some yeah. fascinating information about Venus. There was uh, a space probe called Magellan that was sent to Venus. It was a radar probe. We can't see the surface of Venus because the atmosphere is very thick and dense. So they've done radar images of it, and uh, they were amazed to find that there were very few impact craters on the surface of Venus and it has the appearance just from the geology of it um, to be very recent and the secular astronomers were surprised by this they said well it must have been only formed in the last few million years they always think in terms of millions of years right but no not billions Venus is supposed to be four and a half billion years old the same age as our solar system um, and it appears uh, very recent and possibly formed catastrophically. So that's a puzzle for them. But if you think about it, if Venus is only about 6,000 years old, which is what the Bible would imply, then a young-looking surface is not a problem. No, not at all. So it's consistent with the Bible's record of history. Mm. Another interesting fact was uh, a more recent mission called Venus Express that was launched by the European Space Agency discovered that some of the geological features like mountain ranges weren't where they should be and they figured out that Venus's rotation rate must have slowed down by six and a half minutes in the 16 year interval between Magellan and Venus Express. Now for the rotation rate to slow down by six and a half minutes in the space of 16 years means the maximum life that Venus could have is somewhere in the order of a million years. I was going to say, if you go back four and a half billion years, how fast is well, it spinning? Absolutely. <laughs> so it's, it's spinning you know, itself to death. Absolutely. It, it couldn't exist. You yeah. see. Mm. So, yeah. And in fact, just from the secularists' own calculations, it should have locked itself to the sun by now and had only had one face pointing towards it. Mm. Uh, but it's still turning very slowly, but it's slowing down even though it's going slow. Mm. So Fantastic. Uh, Dr. Mark Harwood, thank you so much for joining us today. You're most welcome. And, uh, yeah, look forward to speaking again sometime. Great. Love to. All the best. Letting go of every single dream I lay each one down at your feet Every moment of my wandering never changes. Oh,
tomorrow bright It's not a day yet you have not seen us So in all things be my life and breath I want what you want, Lord, and nothing less When you don't move the mountain I'm needing you to move When you don't part the waters I wish I could They're living far longer and far happier than most people in the world. And now, their secret's out. Six regions have been identified as blue zones, places where people experience holistic health, and it's doing them a lot of favors. So do yourself a favor and come along to the free Rethink Health workshops, where we will explore six core principles of health and longevity proven through the Blue Zones at the Swansea Center Sunday, October 7, October 14, and October 21st. From 5 p.m. is where you'll find us. For more information, call 0402-528-869 or search for the Rethink Health event on Facebook. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. Yeah. 